G'day folks, I'm Billy Pennell. Welcome to another edition of The Music Show. Before we kick off, I'd like to thank my friend Dominic Alafarci from Collins House for supporting me and my podcast. Dominic can assist you with advice about investments and or superannuation. Just connect online with Collins House and follow the prompts. With the 50th anniversary of the iconic Woodstock Music Festival that was staged on the 15th, 16th, 17th and 18th of August 1969, rapidly approaching, I'd like to replay an interview I conducted a few years back with Michael Lang, a music concert promoter, producer and artist manager and the co-creator of the original Woodstock Festival, who as we speak is working feverishly to put together the 50th anniversary concert in New York. I met Michael when he visited Australia with Joe Cocker, who he was managing at the time. I'd watched the Woodstock documentary movie so often, in which Michael was interviewed numerous times, it was like meeting an old friend. As you'll hear, Michael Lang is a softly spoken, intelligent man whose love for the music and its creators made it an absolute pleasure for me to spend time with him. Well, I guess the first thing to ask you is how did you get involved in music right at the very beginning? I was in a band when I was 12, actually 11 and a half. I was a drummer. And uh, I wasn't great, but I enjoyed it a lot. And I did it for three or four years. And that was really my first delving into music. Whereabouts in America did you come from? In New York. In New York? Yeah, New York City. And after that, did you get into the management side of things almost immediately? No, actually, I sort of backed into the music business. I, through doing, doing some um, concerts in Florida, I had moved to Coconut Grove in Miami. And we started doing some shows in the park. And then that led to doing a Miami Pop Festival. And then when I moved back to New York from Miami, I moved right up to Woodstock. And Artie Kornfeld and I had just been talking about, you know, what to do next. And he was a friend of mine working at Capitol Records. And we were talking about doing shows, and wouldn't it be nice if... And all of a sudden it started to grow, and we, Woodstock came along. Now, Woodstock, first of all, wasn't supposed to be a festival, was it? It was just sort of a haven for musicians to record at and to be comfortable at that sort of environment? Well, the town exi- has existed for a long time it's, and it's been an art colony, basically. And A lot of musicians um, moved in, I guess, in the early 60s. And our concept was to do a studio and, and just a retreat, that kind of facility, and to also have this concert to kick it all off. And then it sort of the concert grew and the studio sort of shrunk. <laughs> So how many people did you cater for originally? How many did you think it attracted to something well, like can that? We planned on 200,000, and of course it grew. Uh, is there any way of knowing how many actually did turn up? Well, the nearest estimates I've gotten from the state police, and they, they figured that there were about close to 600,000 at the site, and they turned back about a million and a half on the roads. Yeah, it's far out, man. <laughs> I don't know if you... I don't know... Uh... Like, how many of you can dig how many people there are, man? Like, I was rapping to the fuzz. <laughs> right? Can you dig it? Man, there's supposed to be a million and a half people here by tonight. Can you dig that? New York State Thruway is closed, man. <laughs> yeah. A lot of freaks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Coming in from London, from over the pole, flying in a big airliner, chicken flying everywhere around the plane. Could we ever feel much finer? Coming into Los Angeles, bringing in a couple of keys. 
search my bags, if you please, Mr. Customs Man. Played the festival. I pretty much kept that to myself. It's personal. <laughs> had to, had to just select them just on ones that you particularly liked. No, uh, although I did like all the ones that we we picked. Ultimately, um, it was based on on bands that were were a, a real part of the movement, like like the the San Francisco bands and some of the New York bands who were just so integrated into into what was going on with the, that subculture that. It was really the essence of, of uh, the movement. And what? other than that, just new bands that I thought would, would uh, people would like. When did you really realise that such a unique situation was occurring? It was, it was unique pretty much from the beginning. It's just it, because it was really word of mouth that, that spread the, the rumour about Woodstock. And, and you'd sort of hear it every place that you went. And I travelled a lot, travelled all over the country during that year. And every place I'd go, people were talking about it. And it's kind of knew something was <laughs> brewing. And then, when a week before the show, we had close to 100,000 people hanging out in the fields, we kind of knew it was... Was the uniqueness the fact that the conditions were very bad because of the weather, there was mud and slush everywhere, so it wasn't conducive to people being together and being happy, but for three days there was hardly any trouble whatsoever, and young people of America did cohabitate under those bad conditions without any problems? Was that what made it so unique? Yes, and I think it's also... The conditions weren't really as bad as, as they might seem because they were natural conditions. It wasn't like you were, you know, in disease or or, or traffic or or, or uh, polluted air or those kinds of of oppressive things. It was, you know, there was rain and there was mud and there was there were lakes and there was mudslides. And, and so it was, it was kind of a natural, organic environment. So people were, after the initial shock of it all, able to deal with it kind of... You know, really naturally. And did that spirit really die four months later when uh, Meredith Hunter was murdered at uh, Altamont? I don't think so. I was at Altamont, and, and it was a, Altamont, conversely, was a weird vibe from the beginning. It was never, it never felt right. It was never smooth. It was always a forced kind of, let's do it on the west coast, and and 
and the whole nature of the way the, the production was mounted was really forced. So I don't, I don't think that, that it, it died there. I think it just showed the other end of the spectrum. Just to get on to some of the acts, I believe that um, Richie Havens wasn't supposed to be the first act on, but circumstance forced you to yes. get into make history. Is that true? Yes, that is true. Um, we needed someone who was playing more or less an acoustic set because the stage was pretty wet and we didn't want anybody to burn. <laughs> and it, you probably know it, you know, when, you, when you're playing with an electronically amplified equipment, if you get wet, it's a good chance you're going to get hurt. So Richie just, you know, we just said, Richie, you're on. <laughs> out he went. It was, he was great. He really sort of he gulped a few times and went out and did it. Let's welcome Mr. Richie Havens.
you talk about the spirit of the music being um, fairly general amongst all the acts. Well, I think to start the movie off with someone who left the stage just saturated in perspiration mm-hmm. and was so involved in the music that after he got off stage and behind the amplifiers he was still strumming that guitar with his eyes closed. That was an unforgettable scene, I think, in the movie. Yes. Yeah, he's, he's uh, something else, Richie. Is he still working very much now, Mike? Yes, he is, and he still works just as hard. I mean, his, his shows are still as, as intense, amazingly enough. He doesn't sell a lot of records now, does he? No, he doesn't. And uh, it's unfortunate, because I think he, he's a unique talent, but it's, you know, times change, I guess. In the movie, you seem to be so busy rushing around on your motorcycle all the time. Did you get a chance to see many of the acts yourself? Yeah, I did. I, mean, I had an office set up in the corner of the stage, and phones and things, so I can keep everything tied together. So I saw quite a bit of it. Any that you enjoyed a lot more than some of the others? Well, Joe is actually my favourite act on the show, strangely enough. <laughs> but yeah, there were, Sly was great and, and um, Hendrix was great in a real different kind of way. Apart from some of the big acts that played, like Sly Stone was very popular then, so was Jimi Hendrix, mm-hmm. so was Janice. It opened a lot of doors for newer bands, so like 10 years after it would have been one, Santana mm-hmm. and, of course, Joe Cocker, who were all new, all got tremendous exposure, didn't they, from right. being at the, the show, but particularly by being in the movie. Yeah, Crosby, Stills and Nash as well, that was their second gig. So, yeah, we had quite a few people that could have emerged out of it. And the movie, too, was innovative, wasn't it, because I hadn't seen split-screen used so effectively before, and it did help to highlight a lot of those acts, didn't it, to yes, such it a did. large degree? Yes, That was Michael Wadley's idea, and it worked really well. Now, it's interesting that of the 31 acts that played at Woodstock, there's only really two now that are still universally popular. Joe Cocker's one and Santana's the other. Yes. Do you place any significance on that? Oh, I don't know. I mean... The Starship is still, you know, it's, it's an evolution of the airplane, and they're they're up, and the dead still does really well when they when there are millions of deadheads all over the, the world. So I think that that Joe and Santana maybe have stayed a little more contemporary. That's all. Well, we're gonna leave you uh, with uh, the usual thing. The only thing I can say, as I've said to many people, is this title uh, just about uh, puts it all into focus. It's called "With a Little Help from My Friends." Remember it.
Something that happens all the time, you know it does. What do you see when you turn off the light? I don't see nothing, but it's just a
Get my friends together Cause all we gotta do is love I'm gonna take them home with me now You gotta get all of your friends Gotta get all your friends in love. Nobody knows the way. Nobody knows the way. You got your friends. You got your friends in love. You got your friends in love. You got your friends in love. You got your stone. My guest on this edition of the music show is Mike Lang, co-creator of the Woodstock Music Festival that is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, 2019. Once again, I'd like to thank Dominic Alafarci of Collins House, experts in superannuation and investments, for supporting the music show. Now, what did you do immediately after Woodstock was finished? Oh, first of all... From what you said in the movie, because all the people that arrived meant that you couldn't really police the admission of the crowds that came, uh, you lost a lot of money on it. Was that recouped in any way through the movie or the yes, record? Yes, through the movies. So you weren't as bankrupt as you thought during no, the festival? No, we, we did fine afterwards. Mm. Actually, it wasn't even a question of not being able to collect. We never got the gates up. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you do immediately after Woodstock? Um, I went to the Isle of Wight, actually, the next week. Yeah, the Fight Festival was going on, and, and I had a lot of friends who were playing there. So I went over and just, just tried to unwind, you know. It was kind of intense year for all of us. And uh, for the, really for that, most of that year, it was just poking around and looking into different different aspects of things. I already started a record company. Artie Cornfield, who was my partner, um, started a record company, so I helped him put that together, and we were working on some other ideas for the future. Now, you were involved with a very creative band around about that time who didn't have much success outside of America called the Fabulous Rhinestones. Just tell me something about them. That was uh, Harvey Brooks, who was from the Electric Flag, and Cal David, who was involved with Chicago, I think, at that point. No, the Illinois Speed Press. And uh, a guy named Marty Greb, who was um, from another West Coast band. I don't recall the name. 
And they were just, it was a band that Harvey and I came up with, the idea for, and then he went out and got these people to, to come into it. And Harvey was living in Woodstock, and I was living in Woodstock, and we just thought it would be kind of nice to start doing something. I wasn't really committed to the music business then. I was sort of wondering what I was going to do with my life. And all of a sudden, once we got the rhinestones together, I realized I had to have a record company to put their records out. So we did that. That was the next step. Okay, now we have a record company. Uh, and it just... I guess the music business for me grew from that. And the Rhinestones were uh, a very musical band. They were kind of a forerunner of the average white band, I guess, in that whole genre of music. And great vocals and good songs. They had one problem, which was uh, they didn't really have a focus on stage. It was kind of um, one of those bands where where different people at different times took took the lead. So their identity was never really that clear. I think that may, may have been a problem outside of America for them.
was it long after you left then that you um, thought about um, getting in contact with Joe Cocker? How did it really happen that you did get together with Joe? Uh, I hadn't really seen Joe um, after Woodstock for several years, and I did a, a festival in France, a jazz festival in 1976. And I was working with a group called Stuff. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the New York session players, Eric Guile. And yeah. And Joe had been working with them for, for a year on the road or eight months on the road. It was kind of a tough tour for him, actually. And so I, I met him again. He came to this festival with them in France and did a set. And then we sort of were reintroduced there. And uh, we decided that it would be a good idea to try working together. Well, at that time, his career... Um seem to be suffering tremendously because of, of mismanagement. Were you aware of that? Yeah. He, it was... It was um, there were a lot of problems in his life at that time, I guess. And, and uh, I think he was a little confused about how to resolve some of those situations he'd gotten himself into. And so we, we just, uh, in talking, thought that we would, you know, together we could come up with a plan, you know, and he was really interested in getting his life back together and his career back together. And he'd always been one of my favorite performers, and he's, a, I guess you know, you talked to him, he's a real sweet guy. And so we just seemed right, we decided to start working together. Well, as it's turned out, it's been the most advantageous step that I think Joe Cocker's ever made in his career, because since you've been together, um, his career has certainly gone to an upward trend. And I think one of the turning points in Joe's career was the fact that he recorded a song called I'm So Glad I'm Standing Here Today with the Crusaders, mm-hmm. and performed it on television to show Americans that he was really back. Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. That was it was uh, an astounding day for us. Actually, that um, he his career, the rebuilding of his career, really started in Europe before, sometime before that. But but this was really his his first penetration of America again, in a way that was very positive and and uh, just removed anybody any any doubts from anybody's mind that he was still a great singer, and great performer.
Something else I think in Joe's favour too as far as your relationship with him goes is that you don't mind being on the road with him, do you? Like some managers that have got established artists stay home in the office, have their acts tour and then collect the cheque when that artist comes back. But you seem to enjoy being with him on the road. Oh, I do. I, I, love, I love to watch the shows. I never tire of it. And, and uh, he's a delight to be around and I like the guys in the band. So. Well, look, it's been great to talk to you. As I said to you before, I've seen the Woodstock movies so many times now, probably once for every year it's been out, that I feel as though I knew you already <laughs> before you came in today. And um, I'd just like to thank you for spending this time, but I'd really like to thank you most of all for what you've done for Joe Cocker. Well, that's been a pleasure. They've both been a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks very much, Mike. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this interview with Michael Lang, the co-creator of the Woodstock Music Festival, on this edition of The Music Show. I know my friend Dominic Alafarchi of Collins House, an expert in the field of money management and a big music fan, would also have found Michael's stories interesting. I'm Billy Pinnell. Thanks for joining me on The Music Show. Take good care of each other and love the music.
Oh.